0: Hello and welcome to Beyond the Page, a Life is Story podcast. I'm Josh Olds, and today I am joined by Reverend Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil. Dr. Brenda is, i want to make sure I get this right, you're the Associate Professor of Reconciliation Studies in the School of Theology at Seattle Pacific University, and your newest book, Becoming Brave, is, uh, I think I would categorize it as part memoir, part Bible study. All Call to Action to Address Systemic Racial Injustice. Uh, Dr. Brenda, it's an honor to have you here today.
1: Thank you so much. Yeah, all of that is true. I do uh, I ha- I do work at Seattle Pacific University as an associate professor, and the only thing I'd add is that I'm also part of a church. I'm the associate pastor part-time of preaching and reconciliation at Quest Church in Seattle, Washington, and so... Um, the book really is a congl- as a conglomeration of having been both in the pastoral work and then working on college campuses and uh, in Christian evangelical spaces for quite some time now. It's good to be with you.
0: Yeah, I I want to begin by just simply saying um, that just acknowledging that this is not easy work. Uh, what you do, what you have devoted your life to, is difficult. And even more so uh, in, in this year has been difficult. And yeah. I I would prefer to just be able to <laughs> let you rest and, and say, you know, for once, let's not talk about all these things. Um, but I know that that is what you've devoted your life to. And that's your job. I just want to say at, at the outset, the strength that you have to purposefully take this up day by day and your unflagging commitment toward racial reconciliation is something that I really, really admire. Um, Wow. That's
1: kind of you to say. I really want to acknowledge that in the podcast that I've done, I think you may be the first person who has acknowledged that this is really tough and we are living in a time that has so so much divisiveness, and it's fueled with so much lack of trust and a sense of uh, winners and losers and you know choosing sides and polarization, and then fueled with a with the political climate that's adding to that it is tough and it, it's um, it's tough uh, to try to do this in a way that is without guile without any attempt to hurt anybody but an attempt to rally the church mm-hmm. and so Thank you for noting that this is a tough time to do this particular type of, of calling.
0: Mm-hmm. As a black person, you, you don't really have a choice um, to, to deal with some aspects of racial reconciliation. Um, you know, you, it, it's just going to be part of your identity. For you in particular, I think um, Ferguson was a change in how you kind of felt about reconciliation personally, uh, and how you dealt with it in your work as a as a as a pastor, as an academic, as a speaker, can you tell me a little bit about how that changed how that changed you?
1: Yeah, it was life-changing. And and it was life-changing because uh I I have come to believe and the first person I heard say this was Brian Stevenson and he talks about the importance of becoming proximate, getting close enough to a situation where you see it for yourself, you hear uh the truth for yourself and it doesn't come filtered through someone else's lens, regardless to whatever silos that we may be in, echo chambers that continue to reinforce what we already think and believe. For me, Ferguson was an opportunity to get close to what was being reported as violence and uprising and, you know, anarchy and anything else, you know. And you see these pictures and on the news and you don't know what is this about? What is happening? And what is all of this, you know? Um, but I am old enough to have lived through, uh, as I was a teenager, civil rights and I, saw protests. I saw Vietnam. I saw uh, the kinds of of, of brutality and and violence and looting and rioting. I saw it. And so this was now all these years later where I needed to come clear on what is this that is happening in Ferguson. So it was a group of clergy and several other um, faith leaders from various faith perspectives who came to Ferguson together by the invitation of sojourners in Washington, D.C., to literally see for ourselves as people of faith. What are these young people talking about? What is the, what actually happened to Michael Brown? What, What does the community, how are they putting it back together after this tragedy why was he in the street for hours, laying in the middle of the street, which is a traumatic thing for children to have to see? What, what is this, and what should the church do about this? That's what I think was the beginning of an opening for me that caused me to really come to the conclusion uh, that I couldn't avoid this. This was not some uh, rebel-rousing group of people in the street. These were people who had witnessed a horrific um, shooting and had, had, had cried out, I think, for the attention of the world to see the pain of this. So as clergy, I felt like I was close enough now for the first time in my life to literally see it, touch it, walk in it, and experience it for myself.
0: Hmm. And that that sort of kick started um, you know this aspect of your ministry, and then becoming brave is about what you've learned in that process, and particularly uh, what you have learned through that process, uh, and and how to how to approach the work of reconciliation, the the exegetical heart of the book is the story of esther and how she is forced to hide her ethnic identity but then uh, has to reveal herself in order to save her people how did you find that story relating to your own
1: yeah well esther i think relates to all of us and 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 for me I have been preaching and teaching and uh, working for reconciliation from a Christian perspective for over 30 years. So I've been doing this for a long time and I am not shy in the least um, and nor have I been timid. You know, I have been pretty clear about um, the call of God on the people of God to be ambassadors of reconciliation. I've said it over and over and over again. But what changed the becoming brave and how Esther becomes my narrative is I tried to do it in a non-threatening way. So Esther finds herself in a political social climate that is demanding leadership, but she is trying to figure out how do I live in this palace that I have been given access to power and privilege, and I have a position. I didn't go looking for it, but here I am. So, but I don't want to. Uh, reveal or, or become threatening in this environment because the queen before me who stood up for herself is no longer here. She was banished. And so I think many of us as evangelical Christians find ourselves in this I want to be on the right side of justice. I want to be on the right side of reconciliation, but I don't want to disturb too much of the status quo that would cause me to appear as if I'm some kind of a threat or a violent person or an angry person. And I bet I'm talking and many people who are listening to your podcast who feel like that. And so for me, the way that showed up is that I didn't talk about controversial issues directly because I knew that they were hot-button topics that would cause a sense of divisiveness and a sense that people would think that I had some political motive that I was trying to push. Right. So I didn't bring up immigration. I didn't bring up abortion. I didn't bring up sexuality because I know that those are types of types of topics that people kind of put you in a camp, ah, liberal or conservative, or whatever the, the, the moniker becomes for trying to label a person as having some, uh, off-centered, non-biblical reason for what they're doing. I hope that makes sense. And so... That was what I was trying to avoid. I wasn't trying to avoid preaching with power, nor was I trying to avoid being prophetic, but I was trying to respect the breath of the audience that I was speaking to in hopes that if I could convince them that this was biblical and not anything politically motivated by my part, that somehow the people of God would hear the Word of God and would begin to live like that. But Mm -hmm. that didn't happen. Mm
0: Mm. at what point did because like all of that sounds like yes that's exactly what you should be doing of course they should be swayed if only my arguments were better if only you know it, it, it's, to those to whom this makes sense it just makes sense and because I've been there and I, I say this as you know as a white male um, I, I've, I've just come away in so many different areas uh, you know racial issues being one of them where I'm like, I, I don't know how I can make this any clearer to the people who are of my group, you know, white evangelicals. I don't know how I can make this any clearer. Um What, so, so obviously we need to, we have to change our tactic a little bit. What has been the change then for you?
1: Yeah, the 2016 election was, uh, A a huge wake up call for me. I was literally devastated. And I'll tell you why. It wasn't because of who won. And I'm I'm very serious about this. It was more the message that over 80% of white evangelicals condoned and still do and still do. Um, I, I, I have been a Christian following Jesus since I was 19 years old. I became a Christian as a college student and the Christians that I lived around in the church that I grew up in, they, they taught me that there's a certain, um, uh, way that 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 we consistently live our lives, and it's not to say that a person can't sin and be forgiven. Of course they can, but there was a standard by which uh, uh, a life lived was was a part of the qualification for leadership. So the kinds of things that were being said and heard, that everyone heard, groping of women, the disparaging of, of people from other countries, uh, um, um, uh, mocking the disabled. Uh, I, I heard once, I could, I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose. I still wouldn't lose anybody. And, and, and that's not, that's just not the people of God I know. Those are not the people of God that that I saw living the life of faith. And so it could have been any other person from any party. Because partisanship and politics are not the same. Partisan is what party you choose and what platform you prefer. Politics is policy. And that means the policies that impact people's lives. And I'm finding that I'm having great angst with a Christian community that continues to justify the types of policies that are destroying people's lives and don't seem to care at all. And that is what caused me to have to become brave. Now I know that in my attempt to avoid politics, I was actually not talking about policies. And I had, unfortunately, conflated partisan with politics. So I'm not trying to be partisan, but I am going to talk about policy. And that's what Esther had to do. She had to come to the conclusion that people's lives are being destroyed. And so I'm a mom, you're a dad. And to think that children were taken out of the arms of their parents as infants and they have no idea where the children are and can't quite get every child back to the parent. If someone took my baby from me and I couldn't find my baby, that would devastate me. And I think it should devastate any single person who who cares about human life. And that's what it means now for me to become brave. It means that I have got to say something about that. Because I wouldn't want that for you, and I hope that you wouldn't want that for me. And then what is it that allows us to justify it happening to someone else's child?
0: Yeah. That focus on policy over just individual conversations and individual reconciliations and conversions, I think is so important because we get the argument quite often, uh, well, you know, I – as a white person, I hear from other white people, well I can't be racist so and so is my friend and he's black um, or so- and so is my friend and they're Hispanic or some some method of 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 that argument or oh Republicans can't be racist because you know Tim Scott is black and he's a senator a Republican senator um, there is a huge difference between, individual relationship and individual conciliation and systemic reconciliation so as we we've moved from from this this you know sort of individualism uh, just so that we're on the same page can you define can you define systemic racism for me and maybe give me some examples for our listeners of what sort of systems and structures we need to be looking at when we're seeking to bring about reconciliation.
1: Yeah, I I would want to begin by commending a book that is now 20 years old, but there's been nothing like it to help white evangelicals hear the difference between the systemic issues and the individualistic approach to reconciliation that has become, I think, the problem for the church. And it's why we're stuck. It's why we don't make progress in the work of reconciliation. And it would be divided by faith by Michael Emerson and Christian Smith. I'm friends with Michael Emerson, know him very well, and he has said to me on more than one occasion, I wish this book would become obsolete, but unfortunately it is still relevant. And so he's doing work right now with the Barna Group to look at how evangelicals think about race, but unfortunately it's through the, the lens of free will individualism. And so I do nice things. I help build a house in Mexico, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, but it doesn't, get to the bigger systemic issues or ask the systemic questions of why is this happening to people? Why is this happening to a certain group of people over and over again and and not to others? What is that? That's a system. That's a system at work. Why is it in the book of Esther that Jews were going to be annihilated? That's because there was an intentional law decree that was passed that specifically targeted that group of people. Why is it that white men can show up at the governor's office with AK-47 rifles and not one person be shot? And a man who is trying to break up a fight to get back in this car with his three children waiting on the back seat and be shot in the back seven times and then be supposedly a threat because, now this is what I'm hearing, he had a knife under the floorboard of his car. So AK-47, knife under the floorboard of his car. And that kind of stuff is what I continue to hear white evangelicals say to me to try to explain why so many black people get killed, shot in the street, and a young man can walk down the street with a rifle hanging off his shoulder after having just killed two people in the middle of the street, and he go home and spend the night without one shot being fired. You see, those are systemic problems in our country. That is the kind of conversation that white evangelicals must be willing to have because there's a discrepancy happening there. There's a reason why black and brown bodies are suffering and indigenous people are without help around the world, around in our country, around the the issue of environmental justice. Why is it that more kids have asthma in places where uh, uh, dumps, Uh, toxic waste can be uh, dumped and and therefore impact the air quality that they live in, where other people will decree and vote this way, not in my neighborhood. Those are the kinds of things I'm talking about. Those are the kinds of things that white evangelicals won't talk about. And those are kinds of things that took people like me to Ferguson, because they're people, young people, white, brown, black, young. They are now saying that they don't believe in the church because they see the hypocrisy. Mm. And I don't blame them
0: yeah yeah I, I remember writing right, you know hours after the 2016 election had concluded, and just saying, my primary fear is for what this means for the church. Uh, my, and four years later, I pretty much see that fear play out. Um, I had so many you know friends, family members, uh, people of my group who said, I'm going to vote for him. I don't like it. Uh, and we, we will hold him accountable. Uh, we will hold this administration accountable if, if they step out of line. And that has either not happened or the the white evangelical definition of what it means to be in line um, is way different than what I had thought it was prior to 2016. Do you, do you feel like... did did the election of Donald Trump, did that simply reveal where we were at in terms of race relations in America, or has did that election actually change things as people shifted their policies to be more like the person in power? Reveal. <clears throat> reveal. Let me say it
1: again. Yeah. Reveal. It's always been there, and that's why I've been preaching about this for over 30 years. And and I've been saying it over and over again in hopes that it would cause us to grapple with what was true of us. The fact that our churches look the way they are, the fact that that uh, um, there's so much segregation in our congregations, and that if, in fact, we seem to have a, a, a worship leader who might be from a different ethnicity or we sing a song or two in Spanish or, you know, from from Africa somehow or we built the house in Mexico. Somehow that has given the church a sense that they're engaging in reconciliation. And we're not. We're we're trying not to look racist. But that's different than trying to actually heal this nation, heal this world, be the agents of reconciliation who demonstrate that the kingdom of God is made up of people of every tribe and every nation and every language, and that we do not disparage human beings. We believe that all people are made in the image of God, therefore we treat our neighbors as we treat ourselves. That's not the church. And I'll tell you the greatest problem with this. I am a college professor, and I do talk to young people all over the country, and they have lost faith in the church. This hypocrisy and this complicity and injustice and racism and sexism and every other kind of way that we try to keep people out of the church has broken the heart of young people who no longer trust us. They don't believe us, which is why the young people in Ferguson and around the country now felt as if they need to take to the streets. This is not Dr. Martin Luther King standing at the front helping people to stay calm because they're, they're rooted in a faith. And so when people say, who are listening to me, get mad about these kids who are throwing things, and these are not just black kids. I'm telling you, these are white kids. These are kids who have had it. And we don't have any credibility to ask them to behave differently because they see us. And the harm that is being done to human lives and being sanctioned through government policies, they see the injustice in it. And now they don't believe us anymore. And so I'm speaking to everyone listening to us on this podcast. If we want to reclaim this next generation for God, we have got to stop and repent and literally turn around because they see it and they they know it and we keep trying to put a scripture on top of it but they're not buying it and i don't blame them
0: yeah yeah i think that's that's so important to to understand and so important to realize that it, it it's very easy it's very it would be very easy to say this is donald trump's fault he caused this uh, and i've heard that from some of my my you know white liberal friends that and so the the problem with that is, if you pin all of the blame on him, then that means that, well, 2020 election, if he is voted out, that's the end. We solved it. It's done. And that's not the case. You know, there's there is so much more work to be done. there there is so much more to do than just replace the person who is leading, because in a society where you know I really I, I, I thank Donald Trump for this is because he revealed what had yeah. kind of been behind the scenes um, and more and more people were ignorant of it or had the ability to to ignore um, these kinds of injustice racial injustice economic injustice ecological injustice and, and on and on and on and um, and he is sort of re- revealed and put in such blatant and crass terms that that you almost have to rise up against it uh, but exactly. this is you know this does not end in November of of 2020 this does not end when whenever he is removed from office this is going to be you know this is going to be hard work for a generation to to turn to turn things around Um uh, about a week ago on this podcast, I had uh, Dr. Ron Sider, uh, who had edited a book called *The Spiritual Danger of Donald Trump*, and we had a very similar conversation on what this is doing to young people and how those who are in their teens and twenties are reacting to the hypocrisy of the church. And you know, he said this is going to take a generation for the church to turn yeah. this around, and that's if we yeah. begin, that's if we begin now, uh, because. Yeah these young people are seeing what they were taught. And and I've had conversations with friends uh, who have, you know, undergone the same deconstruction of their faith and now are holding on to their love of Jesus, but have no idea what to do with the church. And they, they're like, this is all of my mentors, all of my relatives, are behaving diametrically opposed to what they taught me to be growing up. And exactly it, it, that cognitive dissonance is just like, I, you know, I don't understand. So it, it becomes very easy then to just lose faith altogether to be like, well, it, they taught me all of these things, uh, but they're not following any of them. You know, what is, you know, what is true. And, and so it, it, as we move to, toward extremism on that one side, then we end up reacting to it with extremism on the other side. Uh, you know, violence begets violence. How do we how do we keep the peace? And uh, we may have to define exactly what we mean by peace, because yeah. the, abs- the absence of conflict is not peace. Um, how do we how do we control our reactions to injustice while also being firm enough and strong enough that we're not going to just, you know, be kind or be nice or be polite, um, but we're really going to very strongly, very prophetically and unapologetically stand up on the side of justice, but yeah, also not, question. you know, not... <laughs> Descend into chaos, I guess.
1: Exactly, exactly. And I think the answer to the question is tell the truth. Tell the truth. Right. I think we have to tell the truth about the fact that we say that the reason this is so egregious to us as as Christians. And I'm talking now particularly to when I talk to white evangelicals, supposedly this is not about the protests because they're destroying property. But Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. destroyed nothing. There was a nonviolent movement and he was killed for it. And white evangelicals didn't stand with him. Colin Kaepernick didn't hurt anybody. He literally took a knee in silence and was demonized and his his entire career destroyed. White evangelicals must tell the truth and stop making excuses like it's about the looting. No, it's not. Because when there was no looting and a person was simply kneeling before his game, he was turned into a person who was supposedly so unpatriotic that he could no longer stay in the NFL. Do you see what I'm trying to say? That's the truth. The hypocrisy is it's only violent when it's young black and brown kids and, and, and those in solidarity with them who are in the middle of the street yelling for their lives. But it's not anarchy when white people show up with AK-47s and, 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 and stand and, and threaten a, a sitting, sitting governor. One must say something about both of those. If you don't, that's called hypocrisy. And that's what our young people don't believe anymore. They can see the inconsistency. They're not dumb. They can see it. They can see the excuses we make to explain away bad behavior. And we have to somehow say that wasn't what he meant and blah, 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 blah. Where we both know that if a pastor of a church behaved in that way, had five children from three different marriages, public affairs, that person would no longer be in the pulpit, let alone the presidency. That kind of truth-telling is going to be essential to moving forward, because I believe every single word in scripture, the truth will make us free. And anything short of that is going to keep us in this revolving door. So I'm begging, begging the people of God to tell the truth. If, if if we're scared, then just say we're scared. If we say that we're more con- concerned about keeping America in the hands of the people that look more like us and say that. But whatever's the truth at this point, I think we've got to look ourselves in the mirror and literally tell the truth. Because without that, I believe that um, we will find ourselves uh, in a situation for generations to come that will be... Um, a very, um, I don't even have words for it. I feel sad in this moment. I you know I feel that, but I am, I, I love God. I love God's people. I love the church. I believe that we are supposed to be the the healing. I believe that the river of life that flows from the people of God is supposed to culminate in the kingdom of God, where the leaves on either side of the river of the trees are for the healing of the nations. I believe that I've given my whole life for it. And I just am begging some of the people of God because I realize that the way to the kingdom is narrow and not many people choose it. But I'm begging God to raise up a remnant right now in this time in history who will hear the call of God on the people of God to pursue the kingdom of God. And we would embody it so that there would be a generation coming behind us who can trust us again. And you have to earn trust. You don't just talk, you have to live a certain way to be
0: trustworthy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Talk to me for a moment about white allies. Uh, Because, in my experience, and I'm sure that I have been guilty of this as well, there are contingent of white folk whose work in racial reconciliation is well meaning but ignorant. Where mm-hmm. Where have you seen white allies getting it wrong, and what do we need to do differently?
1: Yeah, I would say any attempt at allyship is a good attempt, pra- praise God. <laughs> you know, we both have children, yours are smaller than mine, but when they take their first steps and they topple, we don't co- we don't condemn them for it. We kind of go get back up. <laughs> you got it, buddy. And that's what I want to say to people who are white who um, are, are wanting to be allies. But here's what I said. One, keep trying. If you keep waiting until you feel like you've got it all right, you won't do it. So take baby steps and and be humble enough to go sell again. Here I go. And, but, but that's how we, we have these, these kids now who can run around the house and <laughs> do flips. And they can do that because it took time. The so reconciliation is not something we wake up with and we just do it quickly. We work ourselves into it by practicing and taking step after step after step. And that's what I would first say is necessary. The other thing I've come to really understand, and I've learned this more as being a college professor, I teach in my class about something called reciprocal knowing. And reciprocal knowing is kind of, you could imagine two circles that intersect with each other that place. One circle is, is me. The other uh, circle represents the other. And oftentimes when people are doing the work of reconciliation, we focus too much on what can I know about the other. The truth is in order to really do reconciliation, I must first do the work of knowing more about me because it's what I know about myself that intersects with the other, and that place in the middle is where the work of reconciliation can take place. And so I think that there is a problem because just like racism was, race was constructed, white, the word white was constructed. There was a day where that word was not in our nomenclature. That was not the way people described themselves. They were Jewish, or they were Italian, or they were German, or they were English, or they were French, there was this identity that connected them to a larger story. Whiteness got created for a reason of building a block of people who would be in solidarity together and unify their power. That whiteness is evil. That whiteness was intended to be supremacy, and that needs to be deconstructed. So I would say to allies, yes, do take baby steps, but also do the hard work of, of knowing yourself. Dig deep down into your own story, into your own narrative. Where did this thing called whiteness come from? And what is the destructive nature that it has done to everybody? Because when we can begin to extricate ourselves from that, then we can begin to deal with the real issues in front of us because we can't value in someone else that which we don't value in ourselves. So when someone says, I don't know a thing about my background, I'm just a mud. One of my students said, I'm Himes 57. And I said to him, that's not helpful because you can't value what I care about my culture if you don't care about yours. So do the hard work of figuring that out because that will help you to understand why Native Americans are saying that the land matters to them. You can't hear that. If you don't understand the people that you came from and they too understood what it meant to come from that land.
0: Hmm. That knowledge of history or lack thereof is, I think a large part of a large part of the problem um, because we're, you know we're, we're taught to live in the present. and so we look back and we're like, okay, 1860, 1860s we solved slavery, 1960s we solved racism. We're good. What else? What else is there? Um, because we don't know. We don't know what our history is. Uh, we, and for some, for some people, it is uh, willful ignorance. Uh, they've decided not to know. For other people, uh, it is so far outside of their sphere. And I, I think, to a lot of. Uh, a lot of white, rural America, uh, where a lot of evangelicals are, may not have come into contact with very many people of color throughout their lives. Um, the the issues of um, racial unrest is something that is more attuned toward cities, uh, maybe more attuned you know, toward m- more urban areas, hi- more highly... Densely populated areas. Uh, so specifically for those who, you know, live in the flyover states in the middle of the country, because I think that's all a part of it too. They they did not feel like they had power. They did not feel like they had control, and it's combined with this lack of um, appropriate knowledge of history that sort of created created all of this all of this animosity. How does knowing What history do we need to know or where should someone begin who's really trying to do the work of understanding the racial history of the United States?
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting because even though I'm very thankful that we're getting to talk about my book, Becoming Brave, um, and I pray that people will will find the story of Esther compelling for such a time as this. But there are other authors who are addressing these kinds of issues. And the best historian right now around this conversation that we're having is Jamar Tisby. And his book, The Color of Compromise, is, a, is an essential to do a slow walk through history as to where our thoughts about race and, and the church's complicity with it has been um Consistent throughout history. And that's the kind of truth we have to tell. We've all been educated to think of our world a certain kind of way. Um, and the truth is we almost have to go back and re-educate ourselves now. And so I would c- highly, highly recommend The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby. And I say that because if we don't know our history, it is true. We are destined to repeat it. And your question is right on, right on target. It's a a need right now to tell the truth and to recognize that we've not heard the truth, but we've got to do the hard work of hearing it for ourselves, coming to to real clear-headed decisions about what we now know, and then to say to ourselves, how is it that I've become an adult and never heard that? How is it that I never heard that an entire community that was called Black Wall Street, where people, Black people were literally attempting to build a world by themselves without harming anyone, and it was burned to the ground by white vigilantes. (laughs) Those are the kinds of questions that I think we have got to explore together if, in fact, we're going to move forward in a new direction.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There is is sometimes the sense of, you know, we, we look at you, you talk about Esther in your book. Well, Esther's in a position of power. Esther's in a position of privilege. And there's sometimes a sense of like, well, what could I do? I, I'm, nobody's put me, I don't have any power. I don't feel like I have control of anything. Uh, my, minus being in a position of power, what can we do as individuals to affect the system?
1: Well, the truth is we all have power. The word power literally means the ability to influence change. Amen. And we all have it. (laughs) So power is not just being a queen or king or having, you know, a CEO. Everybody has power a parent has the ability to influence change with their children with their family uh a stay at home dad right has other uh, parents who are working uh, from home or or working in a situation where they're taking care of kids and so there are ways that we can raise our children to uh to think a different way that's power you know there's remember the old song children have to be taught to hate Well, how about we begin, as as parents, to teach children what it is to have a heart that's open for reconciliation. We could do that by the books we choose. We can influence our our, our uh, school systems by saying, would you please make sure that these books are in the library and I'll buy that book. I'll put that book in the library. Those kinds of things are part of what parents can do. So we all have the ability to influence change. Voting and voting with a sense of conscience, not just around our hot topic issues, but around a sense of what would, would this do to make the world a better place? Not just give me a good job, but make the world a better place. What policies would literally cause people to reach their full God given potential? How do we vote with that in mind? Because Abraham was told that he would be the father of nations so that all the families of the earth would be blessed. You see? That's what, that's what power is. Power is saying, I live in this place and I was born at this time. Now what does God want me to do with that? Who do I listen to? Who could I commend? You notice that I mentioned books that are not my own. People are supposed to get on things and push their own agenda and talk about their thing. I want you to buy it, sure, but more importantly, I want us to be informed. That means I use my platform to elevate other voices, too. Power. We all have it. Don't even think you don't. And so who you read, who you recommend, the voices you listen to, the places that you shop and use your money, amen. That, that, that Chinese business owner who has been harassed because the, the president of the United States refers to the coronavirus as the China virus, and now people won't go into their store or their market, we, the people of God, could say, I will support that business, and I will let that gentleman know how happy I am that his store is here. Power.
0: Power. That's good. This is is a personal question for me. Uh, I am a white adoptive dad to a black son. What are some things, and this could be a whole podcast, I'm sure, (laughs) what are some things that I need to know about raising a black son?
1: One, Auntie Brenda loves him, <laughs> and uh, um, he's got a really good dad, <laughs> and that matters a lot. Um, unfortunately, his body will do work, whether he you want that body to do work or not, and that's super sad, because um, they won't see his beauty, they won't see the world around, they won't see him as the charming, probably spunky, rambunctious little kid that he is, they'll see a black kid and, um, and there will be people, especially in this divisive world. And that's why we really do have to change what's happening right now, because it doesn't have to be this, this level of hatred and anger and and animosity in the atmosphere. Our children can sense it. And so I would say, um, one, surround him with role models that are beautiful and strong. I cried when Chadwick Bozeman, um, died, um, because he represented so much beauty, so much power, so much dignity for young black boys and, uh, and all of us really, you know, um, And so I would say the more that he has uncles and aunties who are the types of people that you respect and honor, that he can know that the narrative that he sees on the news is not the whole story, the more you insulate him from the negative things he may hear or will hear as he grows up. So that would be my sense, that the more, I, I believe it does take a village. And so I think the more your village is reflective of your children, the more they'll know that there are people like me and others who are with them. And we're with you in helping to raise our children. People say to me, how how do you do it? You raise kids, you preach, you travel, you you know, you wrote books, all this stuff. Well, it takes a village. I have people who love me and love my children, and they are Peter and Phyllis so child. They're Korean, and they—they they are Auntie Phyllis and Uncle <laughs> Uncle Peter, and um, there's 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 Auntie Gabriela, Gabriela Caballero Cantu, is Latina. So my children have a multicultural family of aunts and uncles who own them, and that causes them to never question that they belong in this multicultural world.
0: Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Well, Dr. Brenda, I want to thank you for taking time to be on the podcast today. Uh, it is—it's been a transformative conversation. Uh, yeah, thank you so much. I was so so thrilled uh, to get the opportunity to to interview you. Uh, and for the listeners, uh, the book is *Becoming Brave*. Uh, it's been out for a few months now. So wherever wherever you purchase your books, uh, contact your local independent bookstore and ask them. Um, To get this book for you. I'm sure they would love to do it. Uh, Contact your library and make sure they have it in stock. This is a book that needs to be read. Uh, This is a book that needs to be taken to heart. Uh, So um, Dr. Brenda, thank you so much for all that you do and for all that you will continue to do in this area. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.